Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Professor John Sullins, who is Professor of Philosophy at Sonoma State University and the Director of Programming for the Center for Ethics, Law and Society. He specializes in philosophy of technology, philosophical issues of artificial intelligence and robotics, cognitive science, engineering ethics and computer ethics. Welcome, John. Thanks, Gil. Looking forward to talking to you. Yeah, so thanks for doing this. So uh, we want to talk um, talk about your book, Great Philosophical Objections to Artificial Intelligence. Uh, but uh, I want to start with sort of the prelude to the book. I guess uh, you had a paper out in 2021, mm-hmm. the AI wars, 1950 to 2000, and their consequences. Right. Uh, you say philosophy and AI have had a difficult relationship from the beginning. the classic period from 1950 to 2000 so four major conflicts first about the logical coherence of ai as an endeavor and then about architecture semantics and the frame problem uh, and since 2000 these early debates have been largely replaced by arguments about consciousness and ethics arguments that now involve neuroscientists lawyers and economists as well as ai scientists and philosophers you say he traces developments and speculate about the future this is a topic of great interest to me john um just to uh, just to make sure that the audience understands my bias uh, i was part of one of those waves in the 1980s um i did quite a bit of work in what was then called expert systems uh first in uh, engineering uh, using IBM 370 with punch cards in Fortran mm-hmm. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> show show my age here a little bit uh and then i got to northwestern i got the first IBM pc and pascal and we put together an expert system for engineering education of graduate students in 1985 
Um, this was early attempts uh, of what we now call, generally call artificial intelligence, but these were called expert systems. They were rules-based and, and they were really sort of an attempt to use the computers, I would say, more efficiently uh, to decision-making and, and those types of things. So you, you talk about four major conflicts or four major waves here. Um, could you talk a bit about the history starting all the way from 1950? 1950, so um, yeah, so what, what we're trying to argue in that paper is, uh, is taking a look at AI, uh, not only from an engineering perspective, but also from philosophical perspective, because there's a number of really interesting philosophical claims that AI uh, can either help us with or challenge uh, within philosophy. So, uh, for instance, you know, he, human specialness uh, is the is the is the human mind something that is uh, unique, or is it something that can be uh, easily modeled and uh, and implemented on a machine? Um, is computation the correct uh, uh, ground level sort of um, uh, foundational level understanding for how information and uh, is transferred in a, in e even in biological creatures so in the uh, in the 50s of course we have right after world war ii we have a, a very uh, strong claim in this direction made by alan turing and uh alan turing in his uh, in his uh, seminal paper um tells us that uh that computation uh, can be defined and can be defined broadly and can be defined in such a way that it's not, uh, it, it doesn't refer only to a particular machine. It can be defined as a, as a logical process that can be implemented on any sort of machine. And then he uh, develops the, his concept of the Turing machine, which is really a, a logical construct. And it's it's not really an actual machine that one could engineer but it's, it is a way for him to describe uh, how exactly computation works. Turns out to be relatively simple, but it turns out that you can do lots of things with the Turing machine. And more, most importantly, a Turing machine uh, doesn't necessarily have to be purpose-built. It, um, it can reprogram itself. So you can, you can develop a Turing machine that has the ability to create more Turing machines. So it, therefore, it should be able to at least theoretically solve any problem that uh, that it gets confronted with, given enough time and enough computational power and all of that. Yeah, you always have to remember Turing machines exist in a logical world where they're not really worried about uh, energy and um, and how the machine is powered, and it has infinite amount of time and an infinite amount of space to work in. <clears throat> So that's a that's a pretty uh, those are pretty special circumstances. But given given those, then this machine uh, in a, in a pretty simple way with just inputs and outputs and uh, and a memory tape that it can uh, change the entries on, you can uh, you can now develop uh, uh, basically any sort of uh, it, it basically is the the definition of what computation is. Um, so he that, that's pretty clever, and he uses it to do some work in mathematics. Uh, and then he writes, uh, uh, you know, that this uh, paper that um, 
suggest that that there is nothing more to intelligence than computation. So if a Turing machine can implement intelligence and electronic computers can implement Turing machines, then electronic computers should be able uh, to be uh, intelligent. And he says things in that paper, like, you know, in within 50 years, no one, no one will contradict me right now, right after World War II. Yes. So, you know, I, I expect everyone to contradict me, but, um, but in 50 years time, and no one's going to contradict me, everyone's going to agree that computers are intelligent. Uh, so we're well beyond 50 years from the mm -hmm. time that that paper was written. And um, and so we can we we can now sort of look back and say uh, was he right was he prescient in this way do we consider computers to be intelligent and uh, uh, and so that's like the first war like the, the first the first conflict with philosophy is um, uh, mathematicians and computer scientists well there weren't really computer scientists back then they were all mathematicians uh, but they were turning into computer scientists and they stepped into this, uh, this world that philosophers thought that they had uh, full control of, which was, um, you know, philosophers were the, were the people that talked about human intelligence. Then they got a big chunk of it taken away by, uh, by psychologists. And now they're going to have another, you know, like the rest of it taken away by uh, computer scientists. So they fought back. And, um, and that was the, the first, the first sort of conflict was, um, uh, if you look at philosophers like uh, Lucas, um, and they uh, they they argued that um, that uh, um, there were there were strict uh, logical limits, strict logical limits to what what could be considered computation, and those uh, for instance, one uh, one particular strict computational limit would have been the um, the uh, uh, Gödel's theorem and, and Gödel's limitations on uh, on uh, understanding uh, um, where sort of where where the where the limits of um, of uh, uh, proof proof making could go right so he has this incompleteness theorem <clears throat> and the in the incompleteness theorem, uh, he proves that <clears throat> within mathematics you can have a theory <clears throat> that is uh, that um, well you're never going to have a theory that that gives you everything that you want that gives you all uh, that uh, that allows you to deduce all truth from the theory or um, or that allows you to um, uh, have a um, uh, uh, have an end, sort of an end to the uh, to the process. So uh, so that so this then being a a, a limit that um, that was placed uh, that 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 one could could argue was a, a limit to computational um, uh, theory and and any pragmatic or practical implementation of computational theory. You should run into uh, this problem. So, so John, for my own understanding, so the conflict here is mathematicians and computer scientists look at the problem as extensible and complete, 
or completely solvable, let's say. Completely solvable, right. And philosophers don't agree with that. Uh, uh, yeah, they, this branch, especially the this first first branch of philosophers that were uh, initially confronted with this problem, were were mostly critics, right? And so, so that's sort of the first conflict, and it's sort of a natural conflict in the sense that most scientists are, I would argue, you know, generally overconfident right. about, mm -hmm. about solving <laughs> problems. Mm -hmm. And uh, philosophers may have sort of a broader view as right. to the constraints that might face face the brain uh, in the long run. Right. And so, so then we come into um, is it the seventies then the sort of the next wave of this? Yeah. Well, we should before we get there, we should uh, because there's probably some listeners who aren't familiar with this territory. Um, and we should talk a little bit about the very famous Turing test because uh, that is very easy for people to understand. It doesn't take a, a lot of technical skill to understand this particular argument. Um, so this was an argument that that Turing made for the general public, and uh, and in the in this argument he proposed that we set up uh, that that computers will will have to be you'll. Even the general public will have to agree that that computers have reached the intelligence of uh, of humans once they're able to pass this test. So how does this test work? We take the computer, we put it in one room, we put a person in another room, and then the examiner, another human, is in a third room, and they get to ask questions uh, uh, via you know back then it would have been teletype, right? So. It would have just been a, a typewriter typing on the uh, electronic typewriter typing in front of them. And so you would type your questions in, wait a few min seconds or minutes, and the answers would come out. And so they would just be labeled A, room A, room B. So you could ask any question, right? There's no, nothing is off, off limits. So, um, so you could ask any question you want. And then after a period of time, you, the uh, examiner makes a distinction I think the computer is in room A or in room B. And Turing says, once we get to the point where where you can't you can't get this right, no better than chance, then we have shown that a, a computer is intelligent. So in today's terms, it would be like uh, imagine you know texting some 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 uh, users in a in a social networking app of some sort, and you never really you never really meet these people, right? Um, maybe some of them are uh, AI chatbots. And if these AI chatbots convinced you so well that you never really thought they were an AI chatbot, you always assumed they were just another another one of your online mini online friends, uh, then basically we have shown that that the Turing test has been passed at that point as well. So that, that would be a modern version of the old 1950s proposed uh, test. They do this test all the time. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, uh, you know, arguably some some programs have some programs can pass it in limited um, limited categories. Like if we say we're only going to talk about Shakespeare plays, right, or or um, uh, whatever topic that they want to put the test in, uh, some some programs do do uh, pass that test. But as uh, as far as I know, and um, 
and I would, you know, this would be big news if it was possible. Uh, no program has passed the that general Turing test. Like, like, uh, like, uh, for instance, Gil, you could have contacted me, and then instead of me actually showing up, I run an AI program that simulates video and and the chat and the whole thing, and we do this whole interview. Right, and you never know that it was uh, an AI that was that was doing it. That's what I mean by passing the Turing test. Hmm. Yeah, just just uh, I, I'm just uh, remembering things, John. So I was very enamored by I don't know if you looked into this programming languages like Prolog and Lisp. Oh yeah, in the late right. 80s. Mm -hmm. And Prolog was a, a major advancement in terms of programming. Yeah, uh, because you could actually fool people. <laughs> Right. You know, in this mm -hmm. Turing test uh, context, right? Yeah. But it didn't go anywhere. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you could fool people, but fooling mm -hmm. people cannot be an right. objective. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Prologue and Lisp, I think, uh, uh, I, I think it's safe to say that a lot of the uh, lot, a lot of what was pushing those languages was uh, was thoughts around this Turing test, right? How do we how do we actually make this thing happen? That that Turing said that we should be able to do. And both of those languages were ex explicit attempts to try to codify logic and language into uh, computer programs. They're, they're beautiful programs. Um, and uh, they, but you're right, they weren't the, you know, end all answer because they were, they, they turned out to be limited in their applications uh, to this specific kind of problem. So that, that, tells us maybe two things, one being that maybe this was the wrong problem, right? Uh, which is uh, one of the uh, one of the conclusions that we draw in our paper and in our book as well, is that um, that maybe this was a red herring, right? That, that sent AI down a, a wild goose chase for, for quite some time. Um, uh, or Turing's just wrong, right? And, and this can't be achieved. Yeah, I mean, there, there's an engineering constraint. You know, one could argue, conceptually, one could argue, uh, we don't have the right tools to make AI. So we mm -hmm. have complex programming languages. Um, the Japanese, I believe, uh, in the late 80s were so enamored by Prolog, they were going to create an operating system based on Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the languages we have today, you know, C++ and um, uh, Python and things like that. They are fairly highly structured languages. Right. Probably incorrect tools for artificial mm -hmm. intelligence. Right. So it might be that the concept is right, but we just don't have the tools to make it. Yeah, I think that that's really an important point. Uh, as you say, there were these programming languages that were geared towards this problem, and then. Uh, we move to other programming languages that are not geared towards this problem. They're geared towards, uh, you know, databases and stuff like that. So, um, so they they work on those problems a lot better, uh, but they start to really fall apart on on this particular problem. Um, so, so yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Is is that the tools matter uh, towards what problem you're looking at? Uh, one programming language is not identical to the next and they they all have various strengths and weaknesses and um and that's that i think is is a really interesting it's an interesting problem for ai because of course there's ai like we have today you know um, uh, 
what I like to call AI ap applications, just you know, uh, AI directed at very thin uh, uh, specific problems does a great job on that. Uh, but then there's AGI, right? Artificial general intelligence, which is the a kind of a program that um, that can generally function across multiple domains, all kinds of domains. And uh, that we don't have, um, and it may be because we don't all, we also don't have a, a a generalizable programming language, right? A language that can just is good at all potential problems. Appears to be a bit of a pipe dream, uh, John. Uh, I know that Google paid uh, five hundred million dollars for Deep uh, Deep Mind. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know the, the problem with AI today. I, I just want to come back to your book, but um, the problem with AI today, I think, is so, so much hype in it. It's very difficult to understand reality from hype, right? And right. there's so much noise around it. Mm -hmm. And so, so just just going back to historical context again. So. I know there was a Dartmouth conference, right? Yes. When, mm -hmm. when was that in the 60s? So, um, so yes, the, the Dartmouth con conference uh, was where the term AI was was coined in, in the very first place. And uh, at this at this conference, you had uh, some of the uh, early uh, luminaries from you know Stanford and Carnegie Mellon and Dartmouth and MIT and uh, a bunch of big names in, in the world of computer science. And they, they got together and, uh, and sort of set the tone uh, moving forward. So uh, late 60s, 70s, 80s, what, what, what was AI and, and what were the problems that, 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 it, that it should try to solve? So that they coined the term artificial intelligence. Uh, I, uh, from, from reading you know, the, 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 the people who attended that conference, uh, they they tend to suggest that you know maybe that wasn't the greatest uh, name uh, that that could have been used because the because of the word artificial right makes it sound like fake right and and so so that that has always uh, like uh, just in the very name of the discipline itself has given uh, uh, people like philosophers unlimited am ammunition right. <laughs> So, um, so that was that was probably a mistake, right? They probably could have came up with a better name, but we're we're stuck with it now, and um, and and then they set they set the uh, the, uh, the the project, right? The research project. So the research project project was going to look for theorem proving machines, chess playing machines, um, uh, and these uh, these kind of chatbot uh, applications. Um, also tacked onto the side would be uh, problems that you need in robotics, uh, vision, mobility, and um, and uh, uh, proprioception, right? Where 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 I am in 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 a physical environment. So uh, so those became those became kind of the big problems that that then all the graduate students lined up right to fill those slots, and and then we have the next few decades of AI research. And so the eighties, as I mentioned, uh, I was one of the people who fell <laughs> fell in love with expert systems and then uh, had to abandon it so to right speak. yeah uh, and so there was a period right that people mm -hmm. thought yeah I mean so we can you know put together rules mm -hmm. uh, I I don't know if expert systems were the right was the right name either I mean this was right. really using computers in automation right I would say yes uh, exactly. you know make humans more efficient right yep 
Yeah, this is another excellent example of where the name matters, right? So when when we choose the name expert systems, then uh, and that and that feeds back into the uh, that it's always going to be in the back of, of everybody's mind this kind of science fiction idea of what AI is, right? So so uh, we're thinking un 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 failing machines, right? Machines that are going to be so good at what you say they're good at, they're never going to make mistakes. They're going to, uh, they're going to always do and predict and suggest the right outcomes. So, um, so that was, that was a problem because as you well know, uh, I entered the, the this, this world a, a little bit after that. So early nineties, uh, just as expert systems, like there were still grants for expert systems. Um, uh, Doug Lynette's psych project was still going, right, which was going to be the ultimate expert system, expert system of expert systems. And um, and so so we were looking at this, but in my program, we were we were like, uh, you know, this was late in the game. So there were there were clear, uh, clear problems with this with this way of thinking uh, because rules are not flexible. And um, and the, even the best list of rules uh, will will work some of the time, but then when it fails, it fails spectacularly. It's very rigid. Yes, yeah, very rigid, very fragile. And so so this was this was a problem um, at the time, right? The the uh, the new challenger was really an old challenger, uh, which was machine learning, and machine learning had been around since uh, prior to the to the 80s so it was it was way back in the 60s right where the the, the first uh first uh modeled neural networks and um uh that what what's really interesting what we track in the paper and in the book is the uh the really uh the, this really was a war right the, the between the machine learning people and the rules rules-based uh community and uh and there were careers lost right there were there uh uh, uh, Rosenblatt, who in, invented these things, like committed suicide after Minsky uh, destroyed him in a in a in a paper, right? Um, but as it, when you go back now and you look at that paper, you can see, you know, Minsky saying that you can't even solve the uh, exclusive exclusive war problem, um, and it turns out that uh, that yeah, you absolutely can, and and Minsky probably knew it, and uh, he was smart enough to have known it. Yeah, um, but he was doing it to protect, you know, his suite of grants and and uh, his graduate students, right, and everybody else, right. So there were so deep sociological factors behind that paper, not just scientific factors, right. Mm -hmm. So um, so that's that's the kind of thing that's the kind of thing philosophers can can uh, are good at, and and it's their job to dig that stuff up, right. Scientists need to do science, and philosophers need to check them when they uh, do nasty <laughs> things. <laughs> so so uh, I want to uh, go go to 1990s now. So mm -hmm. I was at a pharmaceutical company, uh, John, in the 90s, and we put together what was then called machine learning based, you know, sort of predictions of a pharmaceutical mm -hmm. R&D program success right. and resourcing and things like that. Now there is a large confusion in the term machine learning, so so I want to get your mm -hmm. <laughs> your, your uh, take on this. So yeah, 
Machine learning appears to be a collection of statistical methods that existed yep. a long time, including right. regressions. <laughs> right, Regressions right. have a machine learning technique. <laughs> uh, it's beautiful. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I sometimes think of this machine learning as, you know, known mathematical concepts that is given a, you know, it's an old wine in a new bottle type right. thing. Mm -hmm. And then we have deep learning, which, as you say, the, the neural nets has been uh, with us for from the 1960s. Right. Uh, but uh, higher computing power, higher levels of memory, GPUs and so on, have given us a different view to deep mm -hmm. learning, right? So that, that's yeah. sort of separating itself, I would right. say, from yes. the general machine learning concepts. That's right. Yeah, so I think that's that's really important to to uh, highlight is that there's a, there's a, an interesting kind of complex history, um, and you're right at its core, just statistics. And um, uh, but what makes uh, so but what makes machine learning interesting is machine learning gives a machine the ability to be flexible. So uh, so so these systems uh, degrade more um, uh, gracefully. Uh, it's not like a rules-based system where where it'll it'll epically fail. A, um, uh, a machine learning can can fail and then rework itself, right? Use statistical uh, um, uh, uh, analysis to to reconstruct its network, right? I'll try it again. I'll try it again, and um, and so it it gives a, a much more natural feeling to how. Uh, how one might, how you and I might solve a problem, right? We might try something like trial and error, and a machine machine learning basically does that. So, so we we sense a, a kinship there with the way our brains work and the way machine learning works, and and that that that's the way it should be because a lot of machine learning is, uh, techniques are are. Um, designed around what we understand about biological neurons. So they're artificial neural networks and they uh, they attempt to mimic natural neural networks. Uh, they do it in a very different way, but they they try to mimic it. And and to some extent, the, you know, they're they're successful at that. Now, um, so that's great, right? We've solved AI. Um, the problem is that um, that when we move into the the deep learning, which is what, which is the world we kind of inhabit right now, the the, the recent uh, massive success of AI applications, right? The um, the uh, moving AI back into the 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 public's eye. It's it's everywhere. We have AI applications all around us: smart speakers, uh, autonomous cars, um, uh, all, all everything that happens on on social networking, all the ads and stuff that that uh, predict your your behavior, all of this is uh, is is deep learning uh, methods. And what uh, what is really interesting, what what is different now than than it was in the '90s and the early 2000s, is the uh, the amount of data that we have. So uh, I, I mentioned earlier the Psych Project. So uh, that's uh, Psych Project was a really audacious project. Uh, he was hiring um, uh, uh, graduate students to to basically type in facts, right? So so the idea was to just give the machine more facts, more facts to, to deal with, right? The data, it needs data. AI is hungry for data. So let's give it data. But that turned out to be a uh, just this massively un, un, uh, 
a problem that just cannot be accomplished. You just can't. Unveiling. Yeah, it's ungainly. Thank you. That's exactly the right word. So it, it was probably the right idea. It was just the implementation of it was was really difficult, really costly. Uh, when we get to uh, after the internet revolution, suddenly we have almost everyone on the planet uh, willing to type data in, <laughs> Prevent, provide data for AI to work with, and we don't pay them a dime. <laughs> <laughs> and Google, Google made it very, very easy. And Google made it extremely easy, right? So now this thing that was absolutely impossible before has become totally possible because now, now floods of data every second are um, piling into these, uh, these servers. And um, and this gives AI everything it's it needs to work on, right? So now it's it's using these. Deep, that's what deep learning is. Is it's it's just un unbelievably large uh, databases of material that that uh, the machine can learn off of. So unlike so this is kind of an interesting thing. Um, uh, if if we're going to put a, you know have a maze, right? And we put a rat in that maze and uh, and. Pretty soon, like uh, within one or two shots, the rat, the rat learns the maze and knows, you know, how to get through it as long as we're not changing the maze to get to the food. Right? It's it's pretty quick. Uh, we if we do that with a um, uh, neural network, or right, it needs it needs hundreds and hundreds of of iterations to try to learn the maze. Once it does, then it behaves very similar to the rat. But what I'm trying to say is natural neural networks seem to have um, a more um, a more a fine-tuned learning algorithm than what we've been able to come up with with our artificial neural networks even our even our um, our deep learning neural networks so they need they need thousands of tries millions of tries billions of tries uh, before they start to get things right but luckily they're really fast they move they 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 uh, they can iterate through these uh, through these trials, uh, so much faster than you or I or a rat could do. So they don't. So in some ways, they don't. You know, do they really? Do they need the um, the capacities that a natural neural network has? Uh, maybe they don't. Maybe they can just brute force their way into solving these problems that we would like our our neural networks to solve. So, so I want to ask you a philosophical question, John. Um, mm -hmm. I don't have the answer to this, but so I've been arguing for about ten years now that. The real problem in big data and artificial intelligence is how to discard data, mm -hmm. not to use data. Right. Uh, you know, it, so as people say, the more data you have, the better you're going to be. Not necessarily. We have no evidence for uh, more data getting mm -hmm. to better decisions. Right. So the brain appears to be very highly tuned to do, to discard data, very efficiently discard data. Exactly. And I don't think we have focused on that in artificial intelligence. We are about using as much data as possible. So, yeah. so what, what's your perspective on that? So th thanks for bringing that up, Gail. That's very, very uh, astute of you. Um, that is, for, to my mind, the exact problem, right? So, so uh, a natural mind, uh, most of them anyway, not all of them, but, but most of them have a capacity for judgment and, uh, and, and, we can, this can be taxed, right? As we've seen in our culture now, it's like difficult for some of us to um, dispose of junk data. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, 
so I wouldn't want to say we're perfect at it, but I do want to say that we have a capacity that that our current machines don't have, and that is uh, a capacity kind of to um, to to understand which data is more valuable. And we have to be because we are not we do not we're not like our machines, right? We don't have access to all of human knowledge, right? We have to be very circumspect. Uh, with the little bit of knowledge that we have, and we have to make sure that we're using quality uh, knowledge, we also die, right? Our machines don't have a sense of life and death. So if we we know when we make a, if we make a fatal error, it's all over, right? So we're highly motivated to um, to uh, to make sure to to assess and 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 uh, consider deeply consider the uh, the data that we're using in our lives. Um, so, with that in mind, uh, uh, you're right. That is the problem. Uh, as uh, you know, the best deep learning systems right now have no capacity to judge uh, the data that they're that they're fed. This is why we have uh, algorithmic bias, right? Which is uh, so. Th so this is why, like, we're getting sort of towards the end of of, of my of our book, and that is these these last these new wars, right? Which is which is now. Now we found a system that kind of can brute force through a lot of these problems and get results, but can we trust those results, right? This is a really important pro problem. When we set a deep learning algorithm, uh, find me the find me all the best people to give mortgages to, and it chunks away at, at uh, uh, mountains and mountains of data, and it says, yeah, here's the people, right? These, these, these are your best risks, these are uh, more risky, and these are people that I don't recommend you give mortgages to. Um, okay, great, right? Who's gonna argue with that? Uh, let's just give those people mortgages and let's start, start making money. Um, but when you look at the results of that data, uh, as we've been able to show time and time again now, uh, the the data that went into this uh, it, it works it, it's more complicated than this but for the listeners this will make sense to them so so if we look back at least like the recent history of america in the last 100 years or so so let's say i want to put all the successful and unsuccessful mortgages that happened in the last 100 years into my machine and then it, it can then look for the qualifications that make one mortgage uh, likely to succeed and another one likely to fail well, it's going to turn out that um, that, uh, for instance, Black Americans uh, weren't uh, weren't allowed into that market for sociological reasons. And even if they were allowed in that social in, in that market, there were other sociological reasons which caused them to be in um, less valuable neighborhoods, uh, uh, in social situations where they were more likely to lose their job, uh, fail at the at the mortgage. Okay, so the machine machine doesn't have any judgment about that. The machine doesn't know if that was right or wrong. Uh, it it just looks at the results, right? Just give me the facts. And the facts are that uh, if you look over the last hundred years, um, uh, generally speaking, uh, white clients are more likely to succeed at mortgages than uh, anybody else. So the machine is all it's looking for. You just said. Give me the give me the clients that are most likely to succeed, and it's going to say there. Here's your list, right? And that list is going to be Lily White, right? Yeah, I have another example for you, John. There, there was an insurance company in New York uh, deployed an AI machine mm -hmm. that that predicted that um, African Americans um, required less medical care, 
Mm -hmm. And uh, it's based mm -hmm. on historical data. That, <laughs> because they didn't get African medical care, right? Involved. Yeah, right. <laughs> Less medication. Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah. Like and that, that, so that that's like idiotic, right? These are these are <laughs> these are idiotic, dangerous, and uh, and hurtful outcomes, right? That if we're not if we are not circumspect about them, we're going to cause massive damage with these brilliant whiz kid tools that we've that we've developed, right? So one thing you said is it's quite interesting uh, for me philosophically, uh, John, I don't know philosophy, but, you know, the idea that the brain is sort of a risk management system, it, it's not a pure computer. So, you know, mm -hmm. when we started up 300,000 years ago in African savannah, the objective function was not to be eaten by right. tigers and lions. Mm -hmm. And so, so we have sort of a, a tail risk management process, right? So right. we don't really optimize uh, information. We just reduce the tail risk. Right. And that's a different machine. We, don't, mm -hmm. we haven't really created those machines in silicon, right? So no, right. this idea that, you know, brains are similar to silicon-based machines is mm -hmm. faulty because the brains <laughs> are trying to do something completely different. We're just trying right. to live. We, right. you know, we don't want to be eaten. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I, I won't use his name uh, because uh, he may not like this quote, but, but when I was a graduate student, I was talking to a very famous roboticist who um, the listeners would know. And, um, and one of the things that, that so, so I, in my school, uh, we had this small little cognitive science program in, in Binghamton University. It's, it's gone now. But uh, at the time, uh, uh, we were interested in, in the holes in, like, we were, we were always, always, like, trying to poke at the holes of all of this stuff that was, that was going on. And so, um, so one of the, one of the things that I, that I really was excited by and in graduate school that was going on at the time was this embodied robotics, right? The uh, robotics that, that uh, didn't try, didn't try to have a bunch of rules listed in it, like, uh, like they were doing at, at Stanford, but instead uh, gave the machine neural networks so that it could, it could, like every time you turned it on, it relearned how to walk, right? So, um, so it was, it wasn't told how to walk. It was told how to learn to walk. And it could do that really quickly, right? So it'd stumble around, and then then it'd be super skilled at that, at that at that task uh, within within seconds. So um, okay, so that's really interesting, right? I'm really fascinated by this. So I go talk to one of the big names in that, and I, you know, I'm really excited by this. And and uh, and that person had switched to uh, a different system that was that wasn't just modeling like cockroaches and and uh, and biological creatures. They had switched to working on a human-like creature, and so I asked, you know, like I said, well, wait, like, like uh, you're the one that came up with this philosophical standpoint that that we can't start at the top with machines, right? We have to evolve them up. Maybe we'll get to something like humans, but first we got to go through the cockroach and the and the rat stage, right? So, um, so what's up? And, and he said, well, look, you know, I'm getting older and I don't want to be remembered as the guy who uh, invented the robot cat. And, um, <laughs> and, and I thought, well, wait a minute, like you've, you, you have given up, right? I, I felt so deflated and, 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 um, and abandoned because for me, if you could make something that was like a robot cat, right, that could, that could jump up on things and and navigate the the world the way a cat does and survive right on its own 
um, in an alley, right, um, and uh, and and thrive in some in, out out on the savanna, right? What an amazing achievement, right? Because the robots that we have uh, can't make it, you know, more than twenty minutes from being charged, right? So, so like that. So what I'm trying to say is, I agree with you, Gil, that that biological creatures are incredibly fantastic right even mm. a cockroach is incredibly fantastic oh, yeah. and um and that and that our machines really pale, pale in comparison um they uh they do certain things through brute force um uh and they do it they do it in in they they uh, present us with some astonishing uh, capabilities but they have not the they have not the one iota of the uh, ability that they need to survive on their own, or even know what they're doing, or even know that they're in the earth, right? Uh, 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 deep they're unlikely, and, unlikely to invent quantum mechanics. Let's put it that way. Right. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so they're they're so dis dis uh, disinterested and 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 disassociated from the planet that they're on. And and to me that 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 just feels like it's gone so far beyond what the initial like Turing and those people wanted from these machines. They wanted something that was right here, right now. You could have a conversation with. Mm -hmm. uh, try having a conversation with Siri. You can ask Siri questions. Siri can uh, sometimes answer those questions, um, but there is no possible way you're going to have a conversation like we've had for you know an hour or so with Siri. So, so I want to touch on your book, uh, John. So the book was out last year, was it? Yes. Mm -hmm. So great philosophical objections to artificial intelligence. We talked a little mm -hmm. bit about the history of artificial intelligence. And, and I want to get into the sort of the philosophical aspects that you talk about here. Mm -hmm. So you see here um, arguments into four core topics. Is AI possible? Mm -hmm. Architectures of the mind mental semantics and mental symbols and rationality and creativity. You see, this book shows the debate that played out between the philosophers on both sides of the question, and as well as the debate between philosophers and AI scientists and engineers building AI systems. Up to date and forward looking, the book is packed with fresh insights and supporting materials. So, um, so we talked a bit about the clash between computer scientists and engineers against philosophers. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with computer scientists and engineers, I'm one of them, is that they are too focused on the problem at hand, mm -hmm. and they're less aware of sort of the larger questions. So as you say, the philosophers need to check their work right. <laughs> mm -hmm. in some way because they get stuck um very often right i would say yes and we have gotten stuck in this ai um, journey last 60 years many many mm -hmm. times mm -hmm. so so where are we today in 2022 from your perspective is is philosophers trying to untangle the engineers from the, from the mm -hmm. mess that they have made or yeah are? yeah so uh so it's it's there's some interesting new developments i think the the biggest new development uh, is that when I started this, uh, my journey in, into the philosophy of AI uh, a number of decades ago, uh, there were a, a small handful of people doing it. Uh, today, be, uh, because of the uh, 
tremendous, like back, back then we were talking about, well, if AI succeeds, it's gonna have these consequences, right? We don't have to do that anymore, right? AI has succeeded in a number of ways and we can say, these are the consequences, right? So, so if, if, if you would have listened to the community, you know, 30 years ago, maybe we wouldn't have the algorithmic bias that we, you know, we didn't have the, the actual damage done by actual algorithmic bias that we see today. But, you know, now that we have it, right, now we can say, look, we're, you know, we're not just talking science fiction. This is, this is real. And this is just a precursor of the, uh, of the, the deeper problems that will happen as this technology goes forward in its inability to, um, to have, um, have the, the capacity to make judgments. So that has brought out the, the, um, the topic of AI ethics. So there's two there's two branches of AI ethics. There's there's ethics in how AI is done, um, you know, uh, just watching for the, the abuses of uh, algorithmic bias, right, and, and trying to fix it as it happens. That's one style of AI ethics. And the other style of AI ethics is how do we how do we build a machine that can make its own judgment, right, as it's digging through the data, right? Could could we build a machine that would say Wow, you know, I'm uh, when I when I'm trying to solve the problem you asked me to solve, I'm getting this uh, unfortunate social outcome, right? I'm getting all all white applicants. Um, maybe maybe I should look deeper into this problem, right? What's what's causing that, right? Why 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 are my results so skewed, right? So the machine itself, could we build a machine I mean, a machine such that it had its own capacity to judgment for judgment like that? So this is what I call artificial phronesis, right? So um, any any good mortgage officer, right? If they were doing it all by hand and they started getting those results, they uh, could have the capacity to judge. Well, that's not really the society that I want to live in. Let me see what's behind. Oh, let's be behind the problem. Like, how do I change my problem so that I'm not getting these results? Can I get a? Can I can I reset my problem so that I get a more equitable result? Um, so. I want to see AI get to that level, to get to the level where it can have judgment. Artificial phronesis means a machine with uh, artificial practical wisdom. Phronesis is just a, a Greek word that stands for, uh, in English, we would call it practical wisdom, the ability to make wise choices, right? Yeah, so it's sort of interesting, John. So. Um, what AI tells us that is that humans are not very different. We all hold our own biases. Oh yeah. It's just sort of a historical analysis of data. Mm -hmm. And you know, in the country that we live in today, half the country is willing to vote for a guy who is apparently very yes. <laughs> racist. Uh, and and so heuristics that we form uh, from accumulated historical information is what we use in making decisions. And machines are not tremendously different from it. So what that tells me is that the brain is not really special. Mm -hmm. It's just uh, sort of a computer, isn't it? Well, okay, so I wanna push back a little bit on that. Uh, for the most part, I agree with you, of course. Like who cannot agree that there's been some massive problems? Uh, but I wanna look at what are the causes of those massive problems. Um, it is true humans can do a really poor job at um, at ethical judgment. No, no, no question. Uh, humans can also do really well at ethical judgment. 
uh, you know, you can you just look at a, a Martin Luther King or a, a Gandhi, right? Um, there are, we can be creative. What I'm trying to say is we can be creative in ethics just the way an artist can be creative with paint. So, um, so it's a it's a it's a medium in upon upon which we can be creative and create better better worlds worlds worth living, like my uh, my colleague Shannon Valor says. So um, futures worth living. So um, so that's the, so so yes, we make mistakes. We are not doomed to make mistakes. So now next, I want to ask and 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 better than that, right? We're we're also capable of doing really amazing things. We've uh, we've changed our cultures. Like we're not locked into cultures. Uh, uh, slavery was was easily justifiable uh, through many cultures uh, for many millennia. Uh, it's it's difficult to justify now. In fact, it's impossible to justify. It's not that it doesn't happen, but even the people doing it know they can't justify it, right? So, um, so I, I, I consider that a progress, right? Let's let's mark that on the on the win win category for humans. So, um, uh, read like you know Steven Pinker, right? It, 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 if you look at the data, data seems to show humans becoming more civilized uh, uh, pretty rapidly since uh, World War II. So, um, uh, not that, a war going on, John. Uh, yeah, but there's no, but there's not. <laughs> it's not a world war yet, <laughs> right? So it's a little different than World War II. It's lesser. It's a lesser extent, right? It's hard. Like I, I was just giving this lecture yesterday on on Pinker in in my classroom, and it's it it's this is a difficult moment to be uh, to be uh, trying to back Pinker, um, but. It, it, it's true. Like the statistics show, even with the even with the terrible things that happen in our world, there are far less of those terrible things than there were even in our recent past of just a few hundred years ago. So something has changed, right? Uh, now I'm with you on this. We could change back. We can we can regress as fast as we as we progress, right? So so that's really important. Uh, one of the reasons why I think we are currently regressing, even if you look at Pinker's data, you'll see it goes down, 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 and then somewhere around uh, 2002 or three, right? It, it, there's a little a little blip back up, right? So mm -hmm. so we didn't we didn't follow the trend all the way down. We we bounced, right? And is that bounce going to going to shoot up into you know like we start a world uh, a, a world nuclear war, right? Uh, everything's off, right? Uh, that's that's the end of us, and and we've proven that humans are are one of the most worthless things nature has ever created. So um, so that's a possible future, I grant it, but I don't wanna live it. That's not the future I wanna live. And the future that I want to live in, uh, it exists and we can get there. And, uh, and we have the tools to get there and we have to be smarter about what we're doing. And one of the main tools that's preventing us from getting to this world is the fact that we use uh, uh, dumb, non-judgmental AI to feed us our news. And that's how we get the politics that we saw in America um, the last four years, even continuing to today, right? Uh, we, we have a brain that is capable of judgment, but we also, it's not a, it's not a perfect brain, it's not a, um, it's not a super powerful brain, and it can be, it can be hijacked very easily by nefarious AI uh, algorithms that that uh, feed you your news, right? So this is this is our main problem. Um, it, this is this is a problem that that's as bad as nuclear war, right? Because it could lead to nuclear war. Uh, we have to solve this problem. We have to put a lot of effort into it. Currently, we're doing 
just the worst job at it. You know, everybody I talk to in Silicon Valley, they all know this is a problem, but they all make their paycheck off of creating this problem. Mm. So they have no motivation to stop it. The government is too clueless to know what the problem is or how it even gets here. And in fact, they benefit from it, right? Certain members of the government absolutely benefit. There's people in Congress right now that would not be in Congress right now weren't were it not for these algorithms that help help get them there, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a runaway trade. So I want to get to another paper that you have, uh, another very interesting paper, the role of consciousness and artificial phrenosis in mm -hmm. AI ethical reasoning. Phrenosis, uh, you say, is a philosophical term, and I don't know mm -hmm. if I'm pronouncing that correctly, John, that refers to conscious ethical reasoning or practical wisdom. Mm -hmm. uh, you say it's argued that in most adult humans, this capacity plays a primary role in high-level ethical reasoning. If you want AI systems to have the capacity to reason on ethical problems in a way that is functionally equivalent to competent uh, humans, then we will need to create machines that display phrenosis, um, phrenosis or practical wisdom in their interactions with the human agents. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, this is very intuitive on the surface, um, it, it's basically making a distinction between humans and machines in some ways, at least humans and contemporary AI machines, let's right. say. Mm -hmm. uh, I often find not that much distinction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so let's let's have let's let's get your let let's get your take on this. Okay, so uh, what? What I'm driving at with with that idea is it, it, I'm asking I'm setting up an empirical question. I don't have an I, I'm I'm unlike a lot of philosophers. A lot of philosophers sort of have this a priori, like they know the answer, they know the answer they want you to to get to um, right before they start writing the paper. Uh, I'm not that way. So uh, what I'm trying to do is set up a problem. Right, I, I see this as a deep problem. We have, uh, we've created AI, uh, deep learning has been super effective as we've talked about uh, in, the, in the early parts of this interview. And it is, it is now deployed and acting in the environment. So um, it, it's, it's making decisions that affect your life. So it's impacting you ethically. In the philosophical community, we call these ethical impact agents. So these are autonomous agents that make decisions that have ethical value and impact, either good or bad, right? So, um, so now the what what we've just were talking about um, in the last uh, ten minutes or so is is the problem where a machine can have an ethical impact but has no capacity to judge whether that impact was just or not, right? It just it does the impact. It's like a it's like a car hitting you, right? Uh, it it's a it's a mechanical process. Um, the uh, uh, our, our, our train crash, right? It's just it's just a mechanical process. So what what we need to move from is ethical impact agents, which we already have, to I I I notice two more levels, right? So so the first level being uh, what I would call artificial ethical agents, and then the last level being artificial moral agents. So what's the distinction there? An artificial ethical agent uses uh, some 
includes in its in in the data that it's taking in to de decide on a situation. It also includes uh, ethical propositions. It's uh, almost rules based, isn't it? What's that? It's almost rules based. Right, right. That's right. And so, uh, so just expanding the um, the the amount and kinds of data. So, so this is not a trivial problem because now you have to come up with the appropriate computer languages, the appropriate uh, ways to model uh, ethical um, outcomes, inputs and outcomes. Uh, that's a problem. It's a big problem, but I think it's a solvable problem, and it's one that we should be, you know, there should be a branch of computer science that that uh, that does it. There should be some some. Um, there, and, and I know there are at least a few graduate students working on problems like this. So um, I just wanna see more of that and I wanna see it get to the level where it starts to be implemented in uh, AI programs that are actually out there that the public is interacting with. So that's where we are. That's probably the next you know, 20 to 30 years is going to be making that jump, making the, make, make, it's, it's what we call machine, uh, machine ethics, um, it's, it's, mechanizing as much as possible uh, as as much of the it's like an expert system for for ethics right uh, uh, however we want to solve that with whatever tools we currently have but that's basically the idea you have a, you at least have a module within the AI system that addresses ethical concerns and uh, and then then you know when when um, when the when the Waymo car, uh, like like we we saw recently in San Francisco where you know it drove away right and um, uh, the the police officers dealing with that Waymo car uh, couldn't make sense of that right uh, they, there was no way they they can't communicate with that car they can't there there's there they're, they're it's just doing what it does right on the streets of San Francisco mm -hmm. uh, though the um, the engineers said, oh, well, this was perfectly reasonable, right? Because it didn't feel safe where it was and it moved over up the street to get to a part, point where it could be safe, right? So a, a, a human driver would have, would have told the officer, look, I don't feel safe here. I wanna just move right up over there, right? I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not resisting arrest. I just would like to move over to that parking space. Can we do that, right? Yes or no. Uh, but the, uh, right now the machine just makes that choice, right? Without the, the human interaction. So an artificial ethical agent would be able to make have that communication, uh, express its its motivations, and and discuss with its human operators: is that an ethical outcome? Is that a legal outcome? Should we do this or shouldn't we? I quite like this distinction between um, ethics and morality. Uh, mm -hmm. So ethics for me is sort of heuristics driven, books mm -hmm. driven. Yeah, um, we have you know U.S. accounting generally accepted principles. Right. U.S. GAAP. Right. Mm -hmm. There's you know millions of rules in them. Yep. Uh, and we have millions of lawyers trying to get around them. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Uh, the European GAAP on uh, is a little bit simpler. You know, mm -hmm. it's more don't do anything bad. Type right. Gap. Mm -hmm. Right. It's very difficult to get around that. So yep. there is a distinction between ethics and morality. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and in the AI context, we can clearly create ethical AI agents, but they are very rigid in the yes, formation they because right. they are going mm -hmm. to be ethical. Given, because suppose I program it, as you say, right. 
just get white applicants in. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Be ethical and optimal yes, from an right. AI perspective, right? That's right. So the morality question is the true AI question. And that part, I don't think we are anywhere close to solving, are we? No, not even. No, it's 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 hard to even think of how we would get there. Um, uh, the only reason why I think it's possible is because some some human agents get there. So I know that it's a it's it. I know that that it exists somewhere in the state space of possibilities, right? So um, so the exact path, right? That we, that we move a machine up to get there. That that's that's very far away. So so that's this last level, this thing that I call artificial moral agent. And an artificial moral agent would be would have frenetic capacities that equal or exceed humans, right? Uh, we could imagine, uh, like you said, humans are flawed, right? We could imagine a artificial moral agent that was way better than we are um, at at these. Why wouldn't it be, right? Um, uh, we we do a lot of like as you as you correctly say a lot of heuristics we guess we we um, we don't have it right we come out of the womb not knowing anything and we have to we have to kind of hit or miss our way through through life some of us get lucky and become become very uh, ethical agents many of us don't um, so we don't we don't want that for our machines uh, but we don't have to because machines have the capacity that we don't which is they don't they don't come into the world as a blank slate right we can we can we can find the the programs at work and the next machine just already has those those programs so so it seems like we could evolve agents that would be better at these decisions than we are currently they're not they're way worse right mm -hmm. i want to want to get make that clear um the best we can do is these artificial ethical agents, which, as you say, have uh, rules rigidity problems, and they and they will, and they will they will be little lawyers, right? And um, and that is not uh, law. Law and ethics should should coincide, but it often doesn't, right? It's it's often two separate things. Yeah, I'm biased about this, John. I, I, I will today opt for hundred robotic senators in mm -hmm. Washington, right? Hundred humans. <laughs> Right. Because yeah. Even even the ones even a hundred deep minds, right, would do better than uh, than than the the crop that we're current crop we have. Uh, I unfortunately, I think I might have to agree with you on that. <laughs> so, so I want to touch on your. I want to finish up with your one of the older papers, robots, love, and sex: the ethics of building a love machine. Mm -hmm. You say this paper will explore the ethical impacts of the use of effective computing by mm -hmm. engineers and roboticists who program their machines to mimic and manipulate human emotions in order to evoke loving or amorous reactions from their human users. Right. Uh, we will see that it does, uh, it does seem possible, you say, that some people might buy a love machine if it were created. But it's argued here that principles from machine ethics have a role to play in the design of these machines, uh, what mm -hmm. do you mean by machine ethics here? Okay, so so um, so here's here's the uh, what when I was researching this paper, I um, I had to do a lot of research into the psychology and sociology of uh, sex and love, and it turns out when you look at the people, when you read the people who have studied this, like their whole careers, it turns out that there's there's at least uh, uh, three dozen reasons why 
um, somebody might choose to uh, engage in a sexual relationship with somebody else. And, um, and some of those, some of those are, are, are just, uh, you know, nasty, like, like uh, uh, self, self-loathing, right? Some people will have mm-hmm. sex with another person because they hate themselves, right? So, so there's, there's this ugly kind of dark side of sex. And then there's, there's, you know, the, you do it because you're, you're, you know, mutual attraction, like, like all the things that, that we want, you know, that we write in the Hallmark cards, right? That's, that, that, that's one level. And then there's all this stuff in between and the really ugly, dark stuff down at the bottom. So, um, so can we find a machine that people will have sex with? Absolutely. Right. If, if you want to, you want to, if you are self-loathing enough, right, you probably have sex with a, with a dishwasher, right? So, um, so that's not a problem, right? We can absolutely, we already do build build machines that people are perfectly willing to um, use to sexually gratify themselves. Um, so that's not the problem. Um, what what I'm interested in that paper is can we climb up that list, right, to these more um, more ethical, more um, more um, uh, more healthy? Maybe I want. Do I want to say healthy? I think I do. Um, and um, uh, certainly. Um, uh, ones that expand our 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 horizons and our ability to be a better human, right? So, is there a way to build a machine that you would fall in love with um, and have sexual relations with that would then make you a better person, right? Um, so, no, we don't have a machine like that. Can we imagine one? Yes. Watch the movie Her, right? That's that's a that's a movie where an AI helps the human character really grow as a person, right? Uh, by the end of the movie, it's very different, and uh, and uh, even though the, the relationship is- doesn't doesn't you know work out, uh, few you know re- human relationships don't work out either. But they can also even the ones that don't work out can be really important to you and have really changed you and made you a better person, right? So um, so that's what I'm interested in. Can we can we get out of the you know the the, the, the lower grimy area, which we already exist, right? I, yeah, you can build, you can buy those machines right now on on the internet. Um, they're 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 a few thousand dollars, right? Uh, are they going to make you a better person? Uh, arguably not. And um, uh, can we get can we get to the level where uh, these machines are are um, where our relationships with these machines are uh, just and useful? and um and pro-social right uh that's hard to imagine right i I think most people's uh, imagination right now would be wow what a nightmare of um you know uh, android sex slaves uh that seems like a just it's it's part of every dystopian science fiction right they 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 exist within that um i i i i I agree that's where we can go if we want to build that future we can build that future that one's that one's in our sights we know how to do it um I'm I'm arguing in this paper that we should look at this other potential future, which is a better potential future, um, which is one where, of course, those machines are again going to re- require some sort of artificial phrenesis to be uh, adequate um, companions and lovers for for humans and and uh, and seek to make us better. Um, machines can nudge us clearly; they can nudge us in unethical directions which they do already, um, they could nudge us into more ethical directions as well, which they don't do, and which I'm arguing they should do. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm clearly biased about this, John. So 
I, I look at machines and I, I see them superior to macro problems, like we mm -hmm. discussed. I, I would love to put uh, 100 robots in the Senate, mm -hmm. Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. today, yeah. and I have mm -hmm. better outcomes. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm confident I'll get better outcomes. Right. <laughs> so they, 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 they are very good sort of macro problem solvers because mm -hmm. they are, you know, so, sort of um, much better to understand the, the context uh, yep. that humans it appears. Mm -hmm. On the micro level, do humans really need machines for love and sex? I'm not exactly mm -hmm. sure because we got eight billion samples yep. running around the the small mm -hmm. planet that we have. Right. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> if you can find somebody, go look somewhere else. Um, yeah. You don't need a machine, uh, yeah. I would argue, at the micro yep. level. Yeah. So, so, so the, what, what problems does it solve, and what problems do they create? You're right. It can create a lot of really uh, bad problems. Uh, a colleague of mine, Kathleen Richards, considers uh, something like sex robots to be one of the most dangerous things that could happen to women on the planet, um, because she she feels that uh, that that basically it's a, it's a bunch of male engineers trying to create their Pygmalion um, fantasies into a machine and then dismiss all the actual uh, women on the planet, right? So, um, so yes, I, I can see that as a possibility. We, we have to be careful about that. And that it might be the motivation currently for the, the people who are currently working on these, uh, the, these technologies, because there, there are, it's not, it's not a, a gigantic community, but there are at least three or four different companies that are working on solving this problem. Um, so, uh, so yes, that, that could be a problem. And, and the, the other problem is that, you know, we, we've already seen this in social media where you have, where you have your filter bubble of, um, of information. Um, now you could have a machine that would, would be a social bubble, right? So now it's just you and the machine, the machine takes care of everything you would ever want because you're a terrible person <laughs> from any other people, right? So it turns you into this, this little ugly uh, troglodyte, right? That, uh, that can live you know, isolated socially and, uh, and informationally, right? So, uh, so yeah, we, can, we might create a world like that. That would be, that would be just awful as well. Um, I, my, uh, my feeling is these, these technologies are going to uh, come onto the market because they're because people want them ever since the myth of Pygmalion you know humans have wanted a machine like this so uh, so we are going to build one right and we already have and we're just going to make bigger and better ones um, so that that cat's out of the bag uh, we have to now find ways to make them less of a, a social uh, disaster right social and personal disaster uh, because you're right. Uh, currently, computers are terrible at interpersonal relationships. We've spoken a whole hour about that already. Um, and then I've I've just put on the table a potential solution to that. It's theoretical. It's not it's not implementable right now. Um, I am working a little bit with uh, robotics lab in Palermo, and we are doing some experiments. We've just started in the last year on um, uh, looking at looking at artificial phronesis, not uh, like I, I still don't think a machine is capable of doing it all in its own head, but I, but I, right now I'm, I'm exploring the idea that maybe human machine teams would do better. So what, like you said, 
Could we, um, should we replace the senators with machines? Um, should we keep machines out? My argument would be let's do both, right? Let's have, let's have, uh, let's have senators with, with, with artificial uh, prosthetics that allow them to think better and, and more clearly and, um, and uh, more effectively about these gigantic problems that are, that are really are beyond the capacity of a human, an unaided human brain to solve. That's truly a dream, uh, John. Mm -hmm. Make the senators think better. Uh, so, uh, so, so I want to conclude. Um, so I just want to ask you sort of a futuristic question. So, I mean, you've done a lot of work in this area, both from a philosophical perspective, from a scientific perspective. Um, where do you think we will be in, say, 10, 15 years from now mm -hmm. um, on two dimensions? One is sort of the congruence of humans and machines, mm -hmm. uh, are we sort of coming together? Mm -hmm. And the Turing question, you know, can we really sort of differentiate between them? Mm -hmm. So are we are we coming together? Uh, mm -hmm. is sort of the first question. The second question is, you know, a lot of things you've talked about here in terms of ethics and morality. If we are coming together, let's say, um, on sort of cosmetic basis, right? You know, I ask a machine a question, I can figure out if machine is uh, X or human is Y, mm -hmm. but that's a mechanistic question, right? Yeah. Um, there is a more advanced question in terms of what the machine thinks question. Right. So I don't know where, where we will be, but you know, 10, 15 horizon, the first question is, are we coming together? Mm -hmm. and, the, and the larger horizon question is, if we were to come together, would the machines become moral in the long mm -hmm. run? Right, right. So, uh, so I think there currently that that is that is that you put your finger on one of the current, uh, you know, as we say in the book, these wars, right? These 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 places where there are divergent opinions. Um, there isn't a consensus on this. Uh, in the community of people that research and build and, and construct AI and sell AI uh, applications. Um, there is one camp that uh, seems to be pushing in the direction of the machine should do it for us, right? We, that we, the, we should build machines such that they are capable of, of running the planet and we uh, become obsolete and retire uh, maybe even go into extinction, right? And then, then as this becomes a machine planet, uh, like the inner, like the interstellar uh, uh, civilization that will come from Earth will not look like you and me, right? It's going to look like uh, look like a machine, right, of some sort, um, because they would be able they would be able to actually achieve that in ways that you and I clearly can't, because we need we need this planet to survive. So it's going to be hard for us to leave it. So, um, so. So that's one one branch, right? The one, one branch, which is the AI branch that is seeking to supplant and exceed and replace humanity. Uh, then there's this other branch which you were discussing, which is which is often called um, uh, intelligence augmentation. So can we use this technology not to replace us, but to make us better, right? Is there is there some way we can come together with machines? Uh, so that so that we get so so that we get an entity like we've talked about machines are really great super fast and accurate but uh, lack judgment 
we have the capacity to uh, make judgments, but we make lots of mistakes. We operate on, on uh, minuscule amounts of data. We um, make heuristic jumps and that's our problem, right? So obviously, right, it doesn't take a, uh, a rocket scientist to figure this out. If you put these two capacities together, you now have an entity that is capable of judgment and capable of, um, of, of uh, all the beautiful and art, philosophical and artistic things that we're capable of. Uh, plus, it has uh, greatly enhanced capacities to, uh, to make that stuff happen, more data, more accuracy, more speed in, um, in its judgments. Uh, that seems like a good place to be, like a, a place where, where we should shoot for. Um, uh, in that case, you know, thinking many centuries in the future, then, then maybe we are an intergalactic uh, uh, civilization that has the capacity to both survive out there and thrive right at the same time. So, um, so yeah, that, I think that's the direction that we should think about. That's that's always been uh, my you know like big grand plan. So, um, so is there a way to to humanize technology? Right, that's been my whole life has been spent in that direction. How do we humanize technology? Bring bring the two together in such a way that we aren't working against each other. Um, we are working in tandem and are capable of, of creating a, a much better, a much more just, and much more livable world. Um, mm. uh, the other direction I I find really really strangely almost psychotic. Right? Why would why would I work really hard to uh, like spend my whole life doing uh, um, you know working twenty four seven to make the human race uh, disappear. <laughs> but some people are motivated by that. And that's their, that's that's where they're going. So I see two. So where will we be in 10 years? Mm. Really depends on who's got the money, right? Um, if these yeah. guys got the money, we're we're in dystopia, right? Um, if if these guys get the money, which they currently aren't, then we're in a much better place. Mm. Yeah, I mean. I, I don't want to belabor on this. So, John, so I see an explosion outside the Earth into, as you say, interstellar mm -hmm. travel and um, accommodation. There is sort of an implosion inside the human brain uh, of similar magnitude, mm -hmm. uh, I would argue, which is the human brain appears to be getting more confused. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> in some ways, you know. So it's AI is sort of um, a confusing phenomenon, right? For the human brain, and if yep. so, what are the implications? Oh yeah, you're you're right, right? Uh, uh, um, as as we were discussing earlier, uh, natural brains are finely tuned for a specific job, and that specific job didn't include. Um, you know, the world that we currently live in. Uh, obviously it was possible, right? It was possible for those brains to get us here and they did. Uh, but uh, the question is, have we hit some kind of a limit, right? Some some co computational cognitive limit uh, where, where, we're, where, where we are now, now our brains are not helping us move forward. They're actually getting in our way. Um, and I, I think there's, there's some good evidence to that. Uh, it's probably why we see you know, massive amounts of of depression and um, and uh, bad mental health in our societies, bad physical and mental health in our society. The society that we've created clearly not healthy for us. 
in on, on multiple dimensions. So um, so you're right. We can't we can't just continue on ahead, and we can't assume that things are just going to work themselves out because they're not. Uh, there are our choices then would be take a step back, right? Uh, which is the you know kind of back to nature sort of thing. Uh, that has its own like ugly end, right? What are we going to do with the billions of extra people? Right, the planet won't support us in an older, old, old-fashioned lifestyle. Um, so a lot of people are going to die in that direction. Uh, if we just charge ahead without thinking about it, a lot of people are going to die in that direct direction. Um, this is why I'm you know, spending a lot of time arguing for this other possible dimension, which is we um, we start uh, we start really thinking about. How to health? How to how to create healthy technologies that help us enhance our cognitive capacities and our ability to deal with the world that we've created, um, and deal with the world the possible worlds that we could create. Um, right now, we seem to have been hit a real brick wall, a wall that that uh, nefarious actors can take advantage of and have taken advantage of, and uh, and we are in deep deep trouble right now. Uh, I'm I'm just trying to stay hopeful. I, I think there's a solution, right? And I think that that solution doesn't involve the death of, of billions of people on the planet. I think we can actually continue to grow, and um, and I, I'd like to just I'd like us to just do it smarter. Like the Elon Musk uh, uh, solution is, let's just go for it, right? <laughs> Mars ho, right? And um, that's going to have a whole lot of human casualties in its wake, right? Uh, it's it's a uh, it's it's brute force. It's a uh, it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult road to hoe, and I don't and I don't and I don't see like brains that were evolved for the for the African savanna um, sitting on Mars. <laughs> like what are what are they gonna do, right? Um, uh, I don't think I think they're gonna be depressed as hell, and it's just gonna be a lot of you know drugs and stuff to try to keep themselves from killing themselves. So um, so yeah, that's an ugly future. Let's not go there. Let's let's instead. Um, to uh, devise technologies that that kind of uh, um, don't destroy our world and help us uh, maintain it and make it super livable for everybody who's here and find ways to uh, change our our biology and our and our cognitive architecture so that some of us could go off into interstellar uh, space and live happily out there. Uh, there's <laughs> ways to do this, right? Um, yeah. yeah, we just have to be smart and circumspect about how we do it. Yeah, let's hope Elon gets uh, distracted by Twitter. Uh, exactly, right. There is, there is no <laughs> subsidies there. On, no. Uh, so that might no. be a little different. Um, yep. But right. uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll get better. Excellent. Excellent, mm -hmm. John. Yeah, this has too. been great. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.